0: We're going to be reading a very challenging portion of God's Word now together. So we'll turn to Genesis chapter 29. We'll look at verses 15 to 35 and let us stand because we are going to be hearing, you know, our Father's Word this morning. So Laban said to Jacob, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they only seemed like a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife, my time is completed and I want to make love to her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this that you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah, and he worked for Laban another seven years. When the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive, but Rachel remained childless. Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, "'It is because the Lord has seen my misery.'" "'Surely my husband will love me now.'" She conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, "'Because the Lord heard that I am not loved, "'he gave me this one too.'" So she named him Simeon. Again she conceived, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, "'Now at last my husband will become attached to me "'because I have borne him three sons.'" So he was named Levi. She conceived again. And when she gave birth to a son, she said, this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah. Then she stopped having children. And this is the word of God. Now now before you sit down, I've just got to ask you a question. Is, is there anything about what I've just read that bothers you? <laughs> i just got to ask that. You, you, gotta sit, you can sit down now. Let's, just, let's listen to this. I'll tell you, there is so much that is troubling and confusing for a 21st century Southern California reader about what we see in, in the entire life of Jacob. Now, if you're like me and you've grown up in church, and you've heard these stories your whole life in the church. Maybe you're sort of anesthetized to it. You say, oh, this happens all the time in the Bible. And you just wait till the pastor gets through all that bad stuff and gets to the nugget you know, spiritual truth that you can have. Maybe it doesn't bother you so much. But I'll tell you, for the many, many people coming to Lake now who haven't grown up hearing these stories all the time, I can just imagine you're thinking, Pastor Greg, what on earth is going on in this story? There's a whole lot of it I don't understand. What I do understand, I don't like, I like. And especially this thought, what, what on earth can an ancient story with all this stuff in it have to say that will actually direct and, and, and help me and change my life? So I've decided I've got to, to start sometime in this Jacob series by pointing out some of those things uh, in a story like this that modern readers might find to be quite disturbing. So I've just drawn together a few of them, and uh, the labels all start with P, and I'll, I'll see if you're bothered by them. First, polygamy. Jacob first marries Leah and then Rachel, and it just seems like it's accepted as normal. Second, a big word, primogeniture, which is that big word for this system that, that we see here in operating uh, in which um, the firstborn son gets all the privileges and the power and the rights, and the others don't. And I know that there are some of you who have grown up in cultures that still have that, and maybe you aren't bothered by it, but I bet you're the firstborn son. <laughs> 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 I imagine that the second, third, fourth, fifth born, and especially those who aren't sons, you might say, well, what's this all about? And if that doesn't bother you, the third thing is this purchasing wives. Did you notice a father sells his daughters and nobody objects? Indeed, the whole role that women play in general seem to be problematic for us. I mean, things like a woman's whole value just being, it seems to be dependent upon physical beauty. Things like daughters having no voice in their future. Things, and and what I didn't even read in this story, and it goes on into chapter 30, is, is these maids that are treated like virtual slaves. And if none of that bothers you, There are these promiscuous lives that you read of of the people who become often the main characters, like in this one, the main character seems, at least in a modern reading of this thing, at the end to get so drunk and out of control on his wedding night that he doesn't even know who his wife is. It it sounds like a frat party in a state university, doesn't it? Not like a a godly wedding. So what are we going to do about that? I, I, I want you to learn something now about how at least I read the Bible, and I want you to learn to read the Bible, that when the Bible writes about these things happening that seem to us to be so wrong, it's not condoning them, it's merely describing the way things were uh, in this imperfect fallen world at the time that that story took place. In fact, the Bible is, is alone of any religious kind of a book that just refuses to shield the evil in this world and the difficulties and the fallenness of its characters. It just tells us the way that it is. Indeed, when you read the whole of the Bible, you'll find that so many of these things that often trouble us, like polygamy, like the promiscuousness of some of the characters' lives, they always lead to disaster in marriages and in families and and in the whole society. And in fact, when I read these stories, what I see God doing as I read them through from the beginning to the end, I see that God, as, as a scholar named Robert Alter, and I remember him saying this, and I said, yeah, I see this, that God is subverting these kind of things that are wrong in this world that he has made. He is beginning to do this work of undoing the effects of evil in, in our lives and in our systems until someday all things will be made right. And I think even in this story, and as I go through it quickly with you this morning, I think you will see God undoing some of these systems and some of the evil in this world, namely, um, how in the Jacob story, uh, he decides that in spite of the way the world systems are that he is going to choose the second son, Jacob, to be the one who bearies, bears the, uh, the child of pro- promise rather than uh, the, the first son. E- even here, you'll see Jacob, the, the child of promise in his generation, being one whose life wasn't all that it should be. We've seen that already, right? But we see he's going to be confronted with that today. We're going to begin to see God changing things in his own life. In fact, I think we need to learn to read the Bible, knowing that God is at work in our world, that he's in a process of taking things from the way that they are to the way that they someday will be. So I I want you to learn to read the stories of the Old Testament, in fact, the Bible in general, on two different levels. Uh, first of all, the level of the description of what happened. It's telling us what happened, but simply because God's word tells us that something took place doesn't mean that God approved of what happened. And then, second, on the le- level of the awareness that while all this is happening, God is at work in the light of what He is doing, that He has a mission in this world. Uh, my last series of messages to you, I called it God's Biggest Story, you remember? Was pointing out that God is at work in this world to take things from the way that they were, as we're going to see it in this story, and the way things are in our world. Have you been following the media this week? Do you think everything is perfect in our world today? Can I have a witness that they are not? There's still a lot of work to do, but let me tell you, just as that powerful song that Lauren sang for us tells us, God is at work through all of those things. So when we read these stories, we see the way that God takes things from the way that they were, the way that they are, and promises us that someday when he is done, all things will be made new and made right. So what do we do with this story today? And I'll just tell you this when we get through all of those things that may seem strange culturally to us, I think God's Word, by telling us about how He works in real people's lives through stories, He tells us something that addresses what I have considered to be one of the biggest, weightiest issues that we have in Southern California. I think it is so relevant to us as we look at Jacob and at Leah in particular, That, uh, and here's the question, I think I've written them for you, related questions. Can I find my reason to be, my reason for living in anything in this world? That I've got to have that, I've got to accomplish that in order to live, or perhaps this way. Where in this world can I find happiness? So let's begin to look at this. Before we look particularly at Jacob and Leah, let's set the stage for what I read to you (laughs) at the very beginning. We're we're talking about Jacob in this series, but I'm gonna pull us back to two generations before and what happened to his grandfather, Abraham. God had come to Abraham, and in a message I did a few months ago, Genesis chapter 12, and essentially God says to him, Abraham, uh, look at all the brokenness and evil that fills this world. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to remake and redeem this world, and I'm going to do it through your family, through one of your descendants. And basically what God said to Abraham was this, Abraham, in every generation of your descendants, one child will bear the lineage through which eventually a savior, whom the people of Abraham, the Jewish people called a Messiah, each one will bury, have one child who buries, bears that messianic line until one day, one of your descendants will be that savior, that Messiah, the one through whom all the nations of this world will be blessed. So what, what you see when you read the Old Testament is that the first one was Abraham. Then the next child of promise was his son Isaac, who was Jacob's father, And then we have the story that we've gotten into in this series in which a few weeks ago we saw that even though the world would say that the firstborn son Esau should have been the son of promise, it becomes Jacob. Now I know that much of it happens that it becomes Jacob through deception, but we'll wrestle with that another day. Because if you remember the story just a few weeks ago while I was gone, what what Jacob did was he dressed up like his older brother Esau and tricked his father uh, to give him the blessing and, and robbed Esau of his, uh, the blessing that he thought was his. So that brings us to today. As you might expect, when Esau found out about this, he wasn't overjoyed. <laughs> he was angry. He was determined to kill Jacob. Jacob now has to flee out into the wilderness as his partner in crime. Do you remember who that was? His own mother, <laughs> Rebecca, together with the blessing of his father, said, hey, if he's going to be the child of blessing, he can't be married to one of these Canaanites down here. We've got to get him back up into our own family and send him all the way up to her brother Laban. So when we meet Jacob in Genesis chapter 29, I'll tell you, Jacob's life was in ruins. He had thoughts that he'd be a part of a family and the head of that family. And now he finds out, what what good is that? I don't even feel like I have a family at all and no inheritance at all. He'd lived for that before. What is he gonna live for now? So here's what I've called it. Jacob hoping to find his life in romantic love. This feels like one of those romantic comedies. It feels like a Hallmark movie, doesn't it, here? As we read in verse 20, Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. So as he he ran, put yourself into his shoes, as he ran from his home area of Canaan and the city of Beersheba, all the way up to Haran, and I have a map for you to see just so you can picture this really happening. He had to go about 650 miles. They didn't have airplanes. So he he was a man who had lost everything. So finally, when he comes in to the land that Laban, his uncle, his mom's uh, brother owns, one of the first persons he sees is Rachel, Laban's beautiful young daughter. He'd come to a field. Rachel comes out into this field and Jacob saw her. To me, it's kind of a fun part of the story. Uh, Jacob wants Rachel to take him back to meet uh, Laban, her father, but she says, I can't really do it because we've gotta get this big stone back on top of the well before I can go back to, to my father. It usually took three strong men together to be able to do this. Do you know what happened? Jacob just walks over there and he picks up that big boulder, he puts it on the well and he says, let's go home. Uh, I've, I've asked myself the question when I read this, is this kind of like a junior high boy who when he gets infatuated with a girl says, watch me, I can stand on my head just a, <laughs> well, maybe because it, it becomes clear that um, <laughs> there are all sorts of signals that, that Jacob was off the charts, smitten with Rachel. And then there is that poignant statement I just pointed out to you in verse 20 That he had to work seven years for Rachel, but it seemed to him like just a few days because of his love for her. Many of us know this, don't we? I mean, when we just really feel in love, uh, time just seems to fly by. So what I want you to see is, is it seems clear that Jacob at this point is a man driven by and overwhelmed with his emotional and sexual desires for one woman. Uh, The way I read this is, earlier on in his life, as the second boy, he had always thought, "Ah, why does he have to be the first one? And if only I could be, you know, that one who gets that that birthright and and that blessing, then I'll be able to find my life. And now he had been given that, but it wasn't all that fulfilling, right? Uh, He was left there with absolutely nothing. So what is he going to live for now? And just as he's in the midst of that, Rachel, the most beautiful woman he has ever seen, comes across his path, and he says something like this, if I could have her, things could finally be right in my rotten life. If I could have her, my life could have meaning. So as you read it, all of those longings that the human heart, for those of us made in God's image, were made with these longings, longings for, significance, for security, for pleasure, for meaning. He had no other object for him. It was all, all vested in Rachel. Those those longings can only completely be fulfilled in God, and now he had placed them all in Rachel, and it got him into trouble. That, That kind of passion, thinking this one person, this one thing is what I have to have or I can't really live, led him into a trap, and I find out that this is where it almost always leads us, at least it leads people into disillusionment, that, that that thing, that person can't fulfill us. So when Jacob then met his uncle Laban, all right, he encountered a man a whole lot like Jacob was himself, except a whole lot more, Right? <laughs> Remember, even when Jacob was born, his mom had seen him coming out of the womb, grabbing his older brother's heel, and she called him Jacob, the grabber, and he'd been this deceiver all of his life. But I'm telling you, he had a much more experienced deceiver (laughs) here in this Laban than he had ever, ever met. And I'll tell you, Laban, as I read about him, he was the patriarch. Uh, He knew how to use the clout that he had. He knew how to get what he wanted. And I'll tell you, when he met this Jacob, he saw almost a pawn in his hands. So when you look at the way this thing unfolds, you just see how the disillusionment was going to happen and that he would end up being devastated. Think about his plot. So uh, Laban knew that Jacob had offered to work seven years to get married to Rachel now all of this is a part of that system that I talked to you about before that whenever a man would marry a woman he had to pay a bridal p- uh, fee to the father the normal price was from two to three years I mean the high end of this thing would have been three years how long did Jacob say he would work what kind of a deal is this I mean don't you know Laban already knows aha this guy is desperate for my my daughter right out of the box you can see that uh, this wasn't going to end well for him. So then, notice the conversation between Jacob and Laban. Jacob says this, I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter. Verse 18. Have you ever noticed how how Laban responded? He never says, yes, it's a deal, let's shake on it. He He never says that. No, he just says, well, it's better that I give her to you, I suppose, than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So here we you know how this is, don't you? When you and I are desperate for something, we just hear what we want to hear. Right? We just hear what we want to hear. So Jacob, you know what he wanted to hear? He wanted to hear a yes. And so when Laban spoke, he heard a yes. But Laban didn't give him a yes. <laughs> All he said was, okay, if you want to marry her, it's a better idea than somebody else getting her. So then this story unfolds. Seven years passed. Then Jacob in frustration says, give me my wife. I want her and I want her now. And so this was the customary big, big wedding feast that goes on went on for a whole week in their culture. In the very middle of that wedding feast, uh, the, the bride would be brought in heavily veiled and then they would go to the wedding tent and then they would celebrate some more. So that's what you've got to see. So in this time, he goes, she's heavily veiled, it was also the custom that they drank a lot. I, I imagine he, he had done so. Goes and he consummates the marriage, and he thinks it's Rachel, but the Bible just succinctly tells us, verse 25. When the morning came, there was Leah. Okay, how do you feel? Jacob, justly angered jumped up, and he ran to Laban and says, what is this you've done to me? I mean, I've worked for you seven years for Rachel. Why have you deceived me? And Laban only says, it's our custom for the older girl to be married before the younger. But, you know, you can work another seven years, and you can have Rachel too. And Jacob did it. I mean, does that baffle you? I just think, even as a little boy, listening to this story of Jacob, I remember with flannel graph, anybody remember the old flannel graph slapping that thing up there? Even as a little boy, I remember listening to that and saying, why does he do this? Isn't this the man who had just lifted that boulder up up on him? I mean, he is angry. This is ridiculously unjust. Why doesn't he just go to the older Laban and say, I'm going to strangle you for, for doing this? But he doesn't. He, 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 he just says, okay, I'll, I'll go and work those other seven years. And I'll tell you how I see it. I, I think there's something so important to see in this. This scene is replaying for Jacob exactly what he had done to his older brother Esau. The very word that Jacob used, for you deceived me, is the very same word that was used when he had deceived his brother. And really, maybe you already picked it up, what Laban said to him is this, young man, around here, it's not the way we do things for the older, the second, the second to be put before the first. Might be where you come from, but it doesn't happen here. And I, I think Jacob at last sees it. he realizes in his heart what it feels like to be deceived as he had done, to be manipulated as he had done with his brother. So all of his outrage just dies on his lips. He, he meekly just picks up, goes ahead and works seven more years. Let me ask you this in the light of what I've just said. What is it that Jacob wanted when he elevated his love for this one woman into the very position of God? The one thing he had to have in order to really live. What is it that any of us might really be looking for when we even come to church thinking, oh man. I've got to have that, I've got to finish that, I've got to accomplish that, or I can't really live. And we even come to church not not wanting to meet God, but just wanting to get God to give us that thing that has become our God. What is it? It's that we're expecting that one thing to fill the place, I will tell you, that God alone can fill. And I want to tell you in the light of this story, and I hope you'll never forget it, that whenever you get that thing, if you do, it will not be what you thought it was. It it can never take that place of God. Uh, To think that that person or that thing can fill God's place in our lives will only lead to that person disappointing you and, and to that person being put in a place that that person can never be in. So I've written it for you this way. When you put any kind of Rachel into the place of God. Someday you're going to wake up and find out that she is Leah. Yeah. Yeah, that person or that thing can never be God. It will always be Leah. Mark it down. Now, having used Leah as a metaphor, I want to see her as a person for a moment, okay? (laughs) So let's come to the second character I want us to bore down on, Leah. And I find her, and I hope you saw it too, hoping to find her life in her husband and in her family. And this poignant phrase, verse 32, surely my husband will love me now. I think most of us who come can relate or at least empathize with Leah. Can you? She's only described in one way in the Bible, and my translation says she had weak eyes but that's probably not a good translation. Uh, The Bible is telling us there was something about her eyes that made her seem ugly to the other people in her society. I think much more the way we might translate it is, Leah had ugly eyes. We don't know what it is. Maybe they didn't have the sparkle in them, as one translation says. It. Maybe they were bulging. Maybe they were crossed. There was something about her eyes that made her not look attractive to the people in her society. So it should be Rachel had ugly eyes, but, but everything about her little sister, Rachel, was beautiful. So can you put yourself into her shoes? Put yourself into living her life. I mean, her whole life she had lived in the shadow of this this stunningly beautiful younger sister. All of her life, as I picture Leah, she had thought, someday I'm going to get separated from this situation. I'll get married to somebody else, and I'll be able to be seen. I'll be able to be heard. I'll get to be a real person. And now, even when she's going to get married, her husband has to be tricked into marrying her because he really wants to marry her younger sister, and now he's going to have her as well, and Leah is going to have the rest of her life in that same place that she had been before. How do you feel? Verse 30 summarizes the situation. Jacob's love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. That means that Leah had lived every day of her life before her marriage, feeling rejected and unloved, And now she anticipates she's going to live the rest of her life feeling the very same way. And she thought, when I read it, I I just know what's going on here. She thought, the thing that men in my world value the most is having a son. Now, if only I could have a son, then things would be different. Now, here's what I want to do for you. I find that the way the Bible describes what happened in Leah's life to be so profound and so powerful It tells us a lot about what God is like. It tells us also about what the process is like where we begin to understand that we can't find our lives in anything in this world but we can find it in God alone. May may I show it to you? I mean, though nobody else saw it, our beautiful God does and he sees the pain and he opens her womb, that's the word that is used, and he gives her children. So watch what happens. Son number one, Reuben. Because the Lord has seen my misery. See, the word Reuben means God has seen. No one else in her whole life, she felt, nobody else has really seen me as a real human being because they think I'm so unattractive. But God sees. God saw her. He knew that. She knew that. And he loved her. No one else had. So already, it just makes me, I don't know what your life's been like, but... God sees you, right? He knows you. And and yet, even though she recognized that, her life wasn't fulfilled because it's right then that she still says, well, surely my husband will love me now. That brings us to the second son, Simeon. Because the Lord heard that I am not loved. Simeon means the Lord hears. No one else had ever heard her crying. No one else seemed to hear her inner pain, but God heard. Again, it's just so powerful to show us the kind of God that we've come to worship today. He sees, but he also hears and enters into our lives. He'll do that. He'll do that with you. But even then, she still didn't find her refuge in him. So you have son number three, Levi. Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because Levi means attached. I looked at you, Jeremy, in the first service. You have a son, Levi. This, this is, there it is. Uh, in her third child's name, her, her deep longing, don't you feel it for a place of belonging? A place of refuge is being expressed, and that longing is a good one. God has made us, because God has always been triune, he's made us to have a place of fitting and belonging and and communing, communing. and and I'll tell you, children like this are always a blessing, and, and to actually be attached back to your husband and the family, those are good things, but they're not to be the main thing. There's something else that has to be there so that they can be viewed as gifts, not as the God himself. So then son number four, Judah, This time, I will praise the Lord. Because Judah means to praise or to thank. And as I read it, I mean, it's taken a long time for her. It takes a long time for us too, right? How many times have you been in church? (laughs) It had been at least four pregnancies and at least four children being born. A long time for her. But as I read it, at last the coin drops. Judah means, now I'm going to praise you I'm not just going to have them so that they can become the ones who fulfill me. Now my life is going to be filled with gratitude and praise to you. You will be God. Those things will be, well, blessings that come from you. And and I don't know if you know this, but Judah becomes the child of the promise the child through whom Messiah is going to come. <laughs> not, not the, Think about that. This is beautiful stuff. So you can just keep chewing on it. All, all I want to tell you is this. These things that we want to have, these things that we long for, so often they are good. They are worthy of longing for them. They are worthy of praying for them. But they're not worthy of being your God. God alone can be your refuge and your strength, your refuge in times of trouble. The deepest longing of your human heart is not for a spouse or a child or a new job or anything else in this world. All these things are wonderful, but they're not God. It took David a long time to see this too. And finally, by Psalm chapter 37, he would just say it so clearly. Delight yourself in the Lord, which means make him the center of your longings. Delight yourself in the Lord. And then he will give you the desires, the delight of your heart, which is God himself. This time, Leah declares, when her fourth son is born, it's totally different from the first three. There's no mention of her husband. There's no mention of her child here. I think she had a breakthrough, don't you? A spiritual breakthrough. This time, I'm going to praise the Lord. This time, she was going to find the thing that fills her inner being, not anything in this world but God himself. So it's an obvious question I have to ask you, right, as your pastor, obvious question. What good thing in your life are you tempted to treat as the ultimate thing? Coming to church today, is there something you just feel like you've got to have that if you're going to find your life? Gotta have that if you're ever going to be happy? I'll freely confess to you something that you already know. I don't know everything about all of you. I don't know everything about any of you. (laughs) But I think that this will be true of most of us, maybe of absolutely all of us. Most of us have something that we think God just has to give us today if we're going to be satisfied. Do you know what it is? Take time to ask him what it is. I I read this, and this is what's so moving for me. Something happened to Leah that day. God did something for her. There was a breakthrough. She began to understand what this, this relationship with God is really all about. She turned her heart toward the only real beauty, the only real lover of her soul, who could never be taken away, and that is toward God himself. And I, I've just been praying. You know, we can go to church our whole lives and still only come to church trying to think, well, I want God to give me what I really want. Instead of God, I would need to know that you are there and I will trust you. Uh, C.S. Lewis, you know, I read him a lot. <laughs> he was a man who was always on the search of something and thought that he'd found it, only to find that Leah was always there. <laughs> he wrote about this after he had actually come to meet God through the witness of his friend Tolkien. Tolkien and he writes about this in Mere Christianity. May I show it to you? Here it is. He said, most people, if they have really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they do want, and want acutely, something that cannot be found in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. Uh, The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or, or first think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us, our longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And you were. And all this drives us to Jesus because he is the one who has come to introduce us to that other world and to the Father, the Heavenly Father, who is the head of it. Do you remember the language of Jesus? I have come so that when you follow me, you can be born again. Are you beginning to see what he talks about here? You're going to be made alive to a whole world, to God himself, the one who alone can give you life. And in his very clear words in John chapter 10, he said, other things in this world, you're going to look into them, but they will kill and steal and destroy. Here's why I have come. I have come to give you that life that you are searching for, to give you life that is abundant, life to the full. And it's found, it's found only in Jesus. And it's only when we put him at the center of our lives, knowing that he will never leave us or forsake us, then all of these other wonderful things that he gives to us can be can be appreciated for what they are. Wonderful gifts from God to enhance our joy. So with all that in mind, I'm praying that the breakthrough will happen with some of of us. And I wanna leave us with the words of Jesus himself. And in in light of this message and this story, I, I think you'll see them in a new way when Jesus turned to all people and said that we can find our lives, and this is what he said in Mark chapter eight, verses 34 to 35. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, talking there about all those other things that we might put into his place. Take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will find their lives. And when we find it in him, it will be to your joy and it will be to his glory. Amen, 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 (laughs) Amen. (laughs) brother. May I lead us in prayer, Father. I pray I've been faithful to this, this word in which you've told us all about those in whom you were working throughout history. And it gives hope to us, knowing that you saw them, heard them, loved them, did never, never gave up on them, that the same is true for us today. Father, I pray for us today that just what happened in Leah's life might happen to us, that that coin will drop, that that breakthrough will happen. And we will see that we don't just come to church to see what you can give to us that we really want for our God, but to find our hope and our refuge, Father, in you alone, to say that if we have nothing else, you are enough, and to learn to be thankful, thankful for the many other gifts you give us. Do your work in our hearts and our lives, we pray, only because of Jesus and in his name. Amen.